Welcome back to the Dry Fasting Club. I'm Yannick Wolf, and I hope to be able to guide you on your dry fasting journey. Just a reminder that the Dry Fasting Club does not provide medical advice. Please treat it as entertainment only. So today we are looking at a topic called IBS, SIBO, Fasting, and the Migrating Motor Complex. Um, this episode is not meant to be a long one, but as I tried to keep it as short as possible, I kept adding a little here and a little there. I wanted to touch on Epsom salts, SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, a very popular uh, disease that is has its basis in an autoimmune problem. IBS, very similar. It's called irritable bowel syndrome. Fasting and the migrating motor complex. Some people may not be aware, but our body has this built-in mechanism called the migrating motor complex that is only triggered when you are in a fasted state for around four hours. This mechanism has four phases, and some people get theirs activated a little earlier, some a little later, and others vary infrequently. Think IBS and SIBO sufferers. So there are different phases, and your body needs to go through all of them. It may start within 90 minutes after you stop eating, but to complete a phase, you usually need around 230 minutes, give or take. You need this migrating motor complex to keep your body functioning optimally. It's just one of the many processes that need to function to keep your machine well-oiled. Once it starts to fall apart, you can expect lots of downstream problems as well. I believe that a lot of autoimmune diseases that affect the gut also affect the MMC, and therefore fixing this is one of the keys to returning your health. Obviously, everyone is different, and there are a plethora of different problems that you may be facing, especially when it comes to things like autoimmune diseases. So not everything uh, is a one-size-fit-all. However, I believe that this is one of the keys that you need to address. I believe we can all agree that having a cleaner intestinal tract as opposed to one filled with pathogens, bacteria, parasites, is better. I mean, there are hundreds of parasite cleanses, liver flushes, and more dedicated specifically to this topic. What blows my mind is how many people try dozens of different cleanses, yet run away from the most effective one, fasting. Just understanding that the migrating motor complex complex is activated by fasting should be a light bulb moment for you. We have a picture here of a healthy intestinal tract and then a SIBO infected intestinal tract. And you can see that the, the bacterial overgrowth is usually in your small intestine. And that's where the MMC comes into play and helps clean it out. And so the digestive system, when it comes to the migrating motor complex and motility, kind of boils down to five main areas that food passes through. That so starts with your mouth and the esophagus, down to your stomach, then the small intestine and the large intestine. What is the migrating motor complex? Think of it like the cleaner in the small intestine. The main purpose is to clean the bacteria out of the small intestine moving them into the large intestine and eventually to the ileocecal valve and then the colon. The MMC only happens during fasting. This is very important. It is different from peristalsis. Peristalsis is what we imagine when we think about food being pushed through our bodies. 
Often both terms are used interchangeably. Peristalsis is more about mixing and slightly pushing down food, while the migrating motor complex is what is actually the cleaner and pusher. Without it, you're going to struggle with cleaning the small intestine from bacterial overgrowth. Think of it like washing the dishes after a meal. It's called the digestive system house cleaner wave for a reason. And that's talking about the MMC, not peristalsis. Once again, this only occurs when we are fasting. Peristalsis is occurring at all times. So think of the MMC as the big kahuna wave uh, with most of the power, whereas peristalsis is the ongoing small pulse of motility, kind of like an energizer bunny that's always on. This is so important to consider because it provides further proof that we are not meant to be, to be a constantly snacking species. Fasting is so important, it's built into us. It has evolved with us for thousands of years. Eating turns off the migrating motor complex. The exact amount of food is still unknown, as everyone is different. And we have a, a little note here. The migrating motor complex activity varies widely across individuals and within an individual when measured on different days. So nothing is the same, not even in the same person on at all times the mmc occurs every 90 to 230 minutes during the interdigestive phase so between meals and is responsible for the rumbling experienced when hungry keep that in mind 90 to 230 minutes and it depends on who your body type your age what food you eat and a wide variety of things think that that's hunger causing your stomach to rumble Think again. It's actually your migrating motor complex starting to rev up. Usually. And here we think you need to eat something. Yes, eating may stop the rumbling, but at what cost? But maybe the cost of a worse intestinal cleansing. How does migratory muscle complex damage usually happen? Sometimes, harmful bacteria such as E. coli or salmonella can cause an infection in your gut. When this happens, these bacteria produce a toxin called CDT. Your immune system responds by producing antibodies to fight off this toxin. Commonly, this means you get post-infectious damage to the migrating motor complex as a result of the bacterial infection. And we have a few examples here. Uh, Campylobacter, E. coli, Shigella, Salmonella, uh, and a bunch of other ones. However, due to an error by the immune system, these antibodies can mistakenly target a protein called vinsulin, which is found in certain cells in your gut that are essential for the function of the migrating, migrating motor complex. When this mistake happens, it can cause permanent damage to the MMC, leading to problems with digestion. You may not even know that your MMC is damaged because it's something that not a lot of people talk about. And you can function quite well and not even know something is wrong with you um, with a slightly dysfunctional MMC. This can predispose you to develop small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, or irritable bowel syndrome, IBS. These conditions can occur due to an overactive immune response, also known as an autoimmune response. So here we start to see, we return full circle to autoimmune diseases, something that is rapidly increasing in society. What is the number one remedy for autoimmune diseases? 
in my opinion, it is dry fasting. Factors that can further damage the migrating motor complex. We don't have to go into too much detail here, but I'll just list a few. We have impaired sugar metabolism. So unstable sugar levels common in conditions like insulin resistance or hyperglycemia can influence the functioning of the MMC. Uh, this is because insulin and glucose levels can affect the hormonal regulation of gut motility. Number two, we have hypothyroidism, uh, so low levels of the thyroid-stimulating hormone. This condition can slow down gut motility, including the MMC, so that means that uh, it can also affect your peristalsis, uh, so that's pretty dangerous. Hypothyroidism often leads to delayed gastric emptying and decreased intestinal motility, which can result in constipation. Number three, we have neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's, MS, multiple sclerosis. Uh, it can affect the nerves controlling gut motility and impair the MMC. Head injuries, trauma uh, can affect the communication between the brain-gut axis, uh, which is really important and can interfere with the MMC. Chronic use of certain medications. So uh, we have a list here of proton, proton pump inhibitors, antibiotic steroids, and hormonal contraceptives, which can disrupt the gut microbiota. And once again, that is the connection between the gut-brain axis. Parasitic infections also affect your gut uh, and can cause inflammation. Lyme disease and yersiniosis. So these are infectious diseases that can affect the nervous system. Uh, we can also include long COVID into this. So a lot of those autoimmune post-viral diseases, uh, they affect the nerves, the nervous system, which affects gut motility. I have a side note here. Someone that doesn't know what yersiniosis is, is, it's an infection caused most often by eating raw or undercooked pork contaminated with yersinia enterocolitica bacteria. But a lot of people actually get this. It says about 117,000 illnesses a year, but only 640 hospitalizations. Um, and a little side note here, this is usually what I refer to when people uh, try to debate whether you should eat pork or not. And I just say that as long as it's cooked well, there should be no problem. We have celiac disease. That's pretty self-explanatory. It's usually a small intestinal, uh, a problem in the small intestinal lining, and it can obviously affect everything there. The vagus nerve dysfunction, that's a pretty big one and a common one that I've been coming across for the last two years, specifically because of long COVID and all the theories revolving around the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve plays a crucial role in regulating gut motility. If it is compromised, it can affect the MMC. Eating disorders. Anorexia nervosa can slow gastric emptying. Long-term stress. So stress is just a catch-all for everything. We all know that the less stress you have, the healthier you should be. Why does not eating before bed make sense specifically when we're talking about MMC. Most of the cleaning waves in the MMC happen at night while we are asleep. For many people, this will be sufficient enough to help maintain a healthy, balanced environment in the digestive tract. For others, it may be beneficial to space out food intake to allow for a couple of cleaning waves to occur between meals throughout the day. Now we start to connect the dots. There's a reason that we're always told to not eat before bed. Well, quantifying it would mean don't eat around four hours before bed. 
so that your MMC is fully activated before you even sleep, allowing your body to focus on healing and not sending energy and immune cells to combat the food fermenting in your intestines. And I want to bring something up here. I know how hard it is sometimes to not eat before bed. And that's probably one of the things that most people suffer with, but it's so important. I would highly recommend you write it on a Bristol board and stick it in your kitchen, somewhere where you constantly see it. Do not eat four hours before bed for optimal health. Don't forget that when you have digestive issues caused by trauma, bacterial overgrowth, insufficient lymph filtering, or diseases like COVID, your migrating motor complex may need even longer to activate. There's a reason holistic experts see huge improvements in their patient's health when they don't eat before bed. Intermittent fasters love to skip breakfast. This further continues the MMC waves for a longer period of time, meaning you are getting even better cleaning of the digestive system. So in a perfect world, you would eat meals spaced out by at least four hours with no snacking in between. Some people do this with a two-meal, six-hour window approach. That's my personal favorite. So I actually eat lunch around 12 noon and then dinner around 6 p.m. Uh, sometimes I'll eat maybe a little bit earlier or a little bit later. And obviously, if I'm eating dinner around 6, sometimes that can stretch till 7 before I completely stop. Um, but if you plan it out and you have some sort of routine, it's much easier to... Uh, structure your day around healthy eating and having those necessary breaks. This doesn't mean that you can't have some tea in the morning, tea or coffee. Just make sure you're drinking it black. I would prefer tea. And then a similar thing in the evening before bed. Uh, it's popular to take one or two supplements uh, and have some sort of herbal tea that can help you go to sleep. It's important sometimes to switch things up because the body adapts to routines. And to maximize the benefits of hormesis, you need to keep your body guessing. Uh, for in this specific case, uh, you could once in a while switch it up where you actually have breakfast. Uh, or you maybe you'll eat that cheat meal once a week closer to before bed. But I actually would prefer that you eat breakfast and not before bed. That hormesis and making sure that your body does not adapt too well to a certain stressor is another topic that is mentioned in other posts. Hormesis is one of our most powerful tools and uh, that can be harnessed. Look for uh, the Scorch Protocol. Uh, that one's going to be a post that is fleshed out a little bit more and talks a lot about hormesis. I have a side note here. Eating interrupts the MMC. But let's get technical. One study found that a continental breakfast of about 450 calories causes the migrating motor complex to disappear for about 213 minutes, give or take another 48 minutes. So about 3.5 to 4.5 hours. The number of calories and nature of food determines the length of the disruption, with fats causing a longer disruption than carbs which in turn cause a longer disruption than protein. This is further evidence as to why things like a low FODMAP, F-O-D-M-A-P, 
diet and also a carnivore diet seem to help people with gut issues so drastically. You eat less often because you feel full, and this helps you trigger more MMC waves because you are fasting in between meals. This is more specifically for carnivore diet. I don't want to get down the rabbit hole of microbiome, gut bacteria, and avoiding fiber, but there is a post about butyrate and the carnivore diet and the microbiome that you should check out, and I have a link in the article. So the FODMAP diet, carnivore diet, and autoimmune diseases. Take a look at the FODMAP diets. FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, which are short-chain carbohydrates, sugars, that the small intestine absorbs poorly. Some people experience digestive distress after eating them. When you look at this uh, comparison of what is approved and what is not in a FODMAP diet, you'll notice that a the recommended food are things like granulated sugar, brown sugar, corn syrup, sucralose. You have easily digestible plants like carrots, celery, cucumber, um, zucchini, potatoes, protein, food, meat, fish, poultry, fatty foods like oil and butter. But then when you jump into the avoided foods, you see that you have things like stone fruits, apples, pears, artichokes, beets, broccoli, and then you also don't want to have honey, agave, uh, most legumes and nuts, milk, yogurt, ice cream, cottage cheese. So that's interesting that you can see the comparison between honey and granulated sugar. We know that honey is much healthier for us because it digests slower, not even taking into consideration all the micronutrients associated with honey. And if it's unpasteurized, it's antiviral capabilities as well. But we see that in a perfect world, if you know you are healthy, you should be able to eat the avoided foods here. And that's very similar to the carnivore diet, which I'll talk about in a second. So you may notice that the FODMAP diet has close similarities to the carnivore diet. What does this mean? Well, for starters, like I've been saying for years now, the carnivore diet should be used as a tool for health. Think of it like a temporary solution on your journey to actual health. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of uh, too much protein, which leads towards high mTOR activation, which leads towards accelerated aging. I state over and over that carnivore is fantastic for dealing with gut issues, which also affect things like autoimmune diseases, but only in the short term. That's my opinion. Yes, it will make you lose fat and gain muscle, but at the cost of your longevity. We're not even talking about the imbalance of electrolytes and the downward spiral of your body having to deal with buffering acidity for too long. So at the end of the day, I believe that carnivore is great at recomping your body. If you want to build a certain body, I think a short stint on something like a carnivore diet is a fantastic option to speed that up and get results quickly, but as a tool and not as something that is a lifestyle. And I know that goes against a lot of people that swear by the carnivore diet, but that is my opinion. And we have a lot of studies showing that too much protein in a diet does go in the opposite way of longevity. So you will accelerate aging. If some of you are saying, ha, I always told those carnivores to go vegan, then please sit back down because that is not what I am saying. 
And you're also not aware that meat and animal-based fat are the best tools and sources of deuterium-depleted water for your body. Your mitochondria can actually use these nutrient sources to create some of the most uh, cleanest energy for your body and cleanest water. They also have a lower form of pesticides as the animal's bodies already go through a certain level of pesticide elimination. And of course, there's some still in their body, but uh, we get a double layer because our human body also works on uh, destroying and eliminating pesticide. Um, my goal for anyone on the FODMAP diet is to get you to the point where you can eat cups of raw cabbage and feel great. That, so if I'm helping you and, and consulting, uh, I really want you to get to that point. Cabbage is a superfood. I could write pages and pages on it. Maybe one day I will. But uh, raw cabbage, if you try it and you hate it, you have to understand that you need about 72 hours uh, of eating a certain food for your microbiome to actually start changing and adapting to it. So if you hate the taste of raw cabbage, try making it into some sort of salads. There's tons of recipes out there. And eventually move to just eating it raw. There is also uh, no doubt that some of the best, most nutrient-dense foods are animal-based. However, the key is balance, and finding the right one is important. And I will just add on to that by saying everyone is different. So if the vegan diet works great for you, uh, then keep at it. And if you swear by the carnivore diet and don't want to change it, maybe it is better for you. Um, that is a topic that for another time and epigenetics. <laughs> Now let's move on to prokinetics, LDN, and more. Because we're talking about the migrating motor complex, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up prokinetics. Prokinetic agents are drugs that stimulate or regulate muscle contractions in the GI tract, thereby improving the movement of contents through the stomach and intestines. They are often used to treat conditions like gastroparesis, GERD, or constipation. Prokinetics are meant not just to stimulate motility, but in a coordinated fashion so that it's going the right way. Make sure motility is going the correct way. For example, acid reflux is an example of your motility that goes the wrong way and it goes back up your esophagus. When it comes to SIBO, you need a prokinetic that focuses on motility in the small intestine. What's the difference between a laxative and a prokinetic? So this is a very common question, and I think a lot of people get this wrong. Uh, a prokinetic can be a laxative, but most laxatives are not prokinetics. For example, an osmotic laxative can be magnesium or vitamin C. Both of these are osmotic because they draw water into the large intestine, which fluffs up the stool and helps it move through the bowels. Some people think they take magnesium, so they say things like, I don't need a prokinetic. Uh, and this is when they have SIBO or IBS uh, or a damaged uh, migrating motor complex. It's a little silly, but it's a popular assumption that a lot of people make. Specifically with fasting and preparing for extended fasts, we use magnesium sulfate to help flush the bowels. This is another example of a osmotic laxative, but this is a hyper osmotic laxative. It really packs a punch and it helps with a few other things like uh, gall gallbladder contractions, and it, it plays a key role in liver and gallbladder flushing. If you want to take it one step further, you do a liver flush that includes oil and citrus to stimulate your bile and have the bile flush through as well. 
That goes a little bit out of the scope of this topic. Uh, look up the post about dry fasting and intestinal cleanses. So dry fasting stimulates the migratory muscle complex. So no need for prokinetics if you're dry fasting. But both pre and post fast is an important part to try and uh, target the MMC. And in this case, we have ginger, which is a critical health boosting component that can also double as a natural prokinetic. This also explains why dry fasting and fasting in general is a critical key to curing autoimmune diseases. And here I have written long COVID because that's what I specialize in. Uh, but it helps in a lot of other autoimmune problem and diseases. This also explains why LDN helps so much in the FLCCC protocol. And LDN is the low-dose naltrexone. They may not make the connections in the FLCC that they are actually helping the migrating motor complex. But if you're aware of these connections, it really starts to make a lot of sense. So this, let's move to the FLCC, long COVID, and low-dose naltrexone. I definitely jump around topics a little much, and there's so much to say, but unfortunately, so little time. Low-dose naltrexone is a first-line therapy in the FLCCC protocol. For long COVID recovery, the FLCCC has built a protocol that is probably the most popular recovery protocol. On the screen here, I have a little bit of it. Uh, the first-line therapy, second, third, and optional therapies. You can take a look at that. Um, if you haven't heard of the FLCC, see, you're either a new long hauler, lived under a rock, never had COVID complications, or you tune out when you hear the word ivermectin. My advice to you is to not discount it. As I've said countless of times before, ivermectin has a few methods of action that can be considered very beneficial to auto, autoimmune diseases and COVID recovery. And unfortunately, there are some people who have no idea how it works, but just say ivermectin cures COVID, which is wrong. And then they, but you have a camp that just says, that just screams horse dewormer and closes their eyes. So what is ivermectin? Uh, it is a GABA receptor agonist. Huge. It is a blood sugar regulator. Another very important thing. An immunomodulator one of the most powerful reasons why uh, it helps in the acute stages, and one of the safest antiparasitics in the world. The FLCC uses it in all of its protocols. It includes it at 0.2 milligrams per kilogram of body weight as an ivermectin dose. They add prednisone as a corticosteroid and low-dose naltrexone. So Low-dose naltrexone, we already talked about it as being a prokinetic, and that's why it has a lot of relevance to this topic. Low-dose naltrexone is an off-label use of naltrexone for its immunomodulatory effects. Naltrexone is actually a drug that is used to treat opioid addiction. Think heroin addicts. LDN, or low-dose naltrexone, is about one-tenth the power of the actual opioid addiction treatment dosage. The mechanism of action of LDN is now is not greatly understood, but one of the mechanisms includes blocking of opioid receptors and therefore increasing endorphin production. And if you do look this up, you actually don't see much talk about the MMC when it comes to LDN. But if you talk to experts on gut health and 
SIBO uh, or IBS, everyone understands what a prokinetic is, and they know that LDN is a very, very powerful and common one. So I'm not going to get into the first-line therapies and second-line therapies, but it's very interesting that low-dose naltrexone is part of the first-line therapies. So they know that it works for COVID, most likely from an anti-inflammatory perspective, but they don't understand that they are actually stimulating the MMC for the autoimmune disease. And we already talked about this, and I think it's a hidden component that not a lot of people realize how important it is. When it comes to SIBO, and you have a chronic case of IBS, you may have to be on LDN for three to six months, sometimes even long-term, ongoing for 10 years. So some people do that, and they do it effectively with not a lot of um, complications. If you don't want to become a slave to LDN or other prokinetics when it comes to SIBO IBS and the migrating motor complex, then dry fasting is your cure. Every prokinetic has different mechanisms of action. Sometimes it may be beneficial to take two at once. Ginger and peppermint oil are very popular. Ginger is overall very good for you, and I like to add it to my celery juicing. It just covers so many bases when it comes to gut health and overall liver and pancreas health. Here are some other prokinetics, drugs like procalopride, itopride, and naltrexone. Natural substances like oil of rosemary, peppermint, thyme, ginger, or chamomile. Keep in mind that cleansing before an extended fast is crucial, and understanding laxative and prokinetics is a good tool to have under your belt. We have a video here about the uh, migrating motor complex, and here's a very popular question if you are interested in the topic, how to improve the migrating motor complex for uh, SIBO and IBS. We have fasting between meals, which we've already explained. We have activate the vagus nerve. We touched upon this as well. I talk about the parasympathetic nervous system quite a lot. I explain how some proponents of, for example, the long COVID vagus nerve theory say that brain retraining, meditation, deep breathing, and yoga help their symptoms. Uh, I try and repeat this over and over again. You don't need to become a Buddhist monk to heal or activate your vagus nerve. Deep ketosis downregulated the sympathetic and upregulated the parasympathetic. Another big win for fasting, um, this is important to remember, you can basically get uh, exponential effects where you activate the vagus nerve just through extended fasting. And dry fasting is its most powerful form, so you can expect the most powerful benefits when you are dry fasting. Pro uh, another one is prokinetic support, explained in this post. You can take multiple prokinetics. Another one is tolerance of high FODMAP products, also explained in this post. If you are improving your MMC and base level health, you can qualify it by showing an increase in tolerance to high FODMAP foods. And if you bring it back to me, by the point that you're able to eat cabbage with, with no gut discomfort, uh, you are well on your way to healing your MMC and your autoimmune illnesses. Fixing your diurnal rhythm is the last one, so sleep is the basis of health. It's your job to build a healthy diurnal rhythm that includes waking up and getting enough access to sunlight, as well as sleeping well, not eating before sleep, and letting your bright brain gut axis heal. I support melatonin, and you can see that in some of my protocols, but for emergency uses. If you cannot go to sleep, then it that is an emergency use, but overall, 
you need to stay away from supplements that your body can create itself, lest you damage your internal pathways. Your body can create melatonin. And so I'll give you a little hint here. Skipping melatonin, but supplementing something like the amino acid L-tryptophan is a much stronger solution. And you'll also see that uh, in my Scorch protocol. But then you also have to take into consideration a few other things. And one of the main ones is the niacin conversion for the L-tryptophan chiurnine pathway. You supplement with niacin at the same time as L-tryptophan, usually before bed, to lock down the niacin conversion and to let tryptophan focus on melatonin and serotonin. Finally, why you should be fasting for IBS and SIBO. Nothing applies to everybody. That's definitely a solid rule to keep in mind. Getting this out of the way, you already fast for 7 to 8 hours when you sleep. So stop being so scared of it. The migrating muscle complex gets activated with a 4-hour fast. So let's get to it. You are already a bit of a faster since you fast while you sleep. Start with waiting for breakfast for an hour or two extra. Don't eat a few hours before bed and then you have it. You've started your fasting and healing journey. You have extended the window and you can keep pushing it little by little. The benefits of fasting are fantastic. Once you start healing your migrating motor complex, your gut and your digestive system, you will start to realize that fasting was always there for you. You just didn't know it. If you have IBS or SIBO and you have never tried to fast, I am trying to convince you that this is the time to try it. You know that when you don't eat, you pr so probably in the morning, you feel your best. Extend that feeling. Let your body guide you. Another thing to consider with fasting is that your fat cells have all the nutrients and vitamins you need. Work on replenishing your fat cells during your refeed with good, healthy food, and that will exponentially make you feel better on future fasts. Once you are comfortable with intermittent fasting, you can work your way up to your first 24-hour fast and then take it a little bit longer. This will introduce you to a whole new world where you can start to wave goodbye to both SIBO and IBS. Well, we're near the end of the episode. As always, references are in the show notes. Subscribing or leaving a five-star helps me continue this work. If you'd like to give me any ideas on how to improve or any comments in particular, I'd love to hear from you. If you're looking for some coaching and motivation for your next dry fast, send me an email at yannick at dryfastingclub.com. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening and make sure you join the Dry Fasting Club Discord group. Good luck on your dry fasting journey.